Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. In lots of places, shopping centers and high streets aren't the vibrant scene they once were. Online shopping has chipped away at foot traffic and the value of commercial premises. But many tech firms still need real estate, and the investors providing it are increasingly a hot property. For a while there, quinoa was the must-have grain, an exotic South American import with serious health credentials. But then the quinoa bubble burst. Now it's making a comeback, in part on American farms. You'll soon see more of it in processed foods. But first... The second largest democratic exercise in the world has concluded. Votes in the European parliamentary election have been counted, and the union's legislature is set for a bit of a shake-up. My colleague Anne McElvoy has been digging into the numbers. Over the last few days, voters across Europe have been at the polls, with elections across 28 countries. They determine the makeup of the European Parliament, and they'll help shape the continent's politics for the next five years. Now all the results are in, and in Britain, it was Nigel Farage's Brexit party that topped the polls. Never before in British politics has a new political party appeared, rather like a jack-in-the-box, and what a national election. Overall, populist and insurgent parties have made gains, but it wasn't the continuing surge that some had predicted. Still, not such good news for the traditional parties either. The dominant centre-right and centre-left blocs struggled across the continent, with Green parties making a surprisingly strong showing. Overall, European politics looks a lot more piecemeal than it was. The principal trend was fragmentation. Jeremy Cliff is our Brussels bureau chief, and he watched the results roll in. The European Parliament has for many years been dominated by two big monolithic groups, the Social Democrats on the centre-left and the Christian Democrats on the centre-right, and they were the two big losers of this election. Jointly, they lost 86 seats in the 751-seat chamber. And they lost those seats to a mix of parties, uh, ranging from one side of the spectrum to the other. The big winners were the Greens and the Liberals, boosted by Emmanuel Macron's newly elected MEPs in France, but also parties on the anti-European right of the spectrum as well. So it was a very diverse picture, but the big story really was this fragmentation of the old duopoly. And how have the populist parties who've made the news across Europe for the last couple of years, how have they been faring? 
Well, they didn't have a bad election. Overall, the three Eurosceptic or hard-right groups in the European Parliament increased their share of the seats from about 21 to about 23%. But it wasn't the giant leap forward that some expected. Yes, Matteo Salvini, the Italian populist leader who dominates his country's politics, won a great victory there. But elsewhere, you had figures like Marine Le Pen in France fall back slightly on 2014. You had Parties like the Alternative for Germany, a Eurosceptic right-wing party in Germany, only creep forward relative to its performance in 2014. So yes, the right-wing populists made some gains, but not perhaps to the extent that some expected. Well, let's test that thesis looking at the United Kingdom. One populist party that did make very substantial gains in this election was Nigel Farage's Brexit party. How do you interpret that and how do you think it will influence UK politics from now? Well, clearly, Nigel Farage has managed a great victory in the UK. He's pulled together an array of different voters from different parts of the traditional political spectrum, united by their dissatisfaction at the failure to deliver Brexit. But at the same time, you also had a rise in support for the pro-Remain Liberal Democrat Party, which was rewarded for its clear stance against Brexit. So I think the UK, although in many ways is quite a unique case in this election, not least because we don't even know how long its MEPs are going to sit in the European Parliament, it actually conformed to the broader European pattern of fragmentation and, you know, severe losses for the two conventional centre-right and centre-left parties, the Labour and Tory parties, and successes for parties that are perhaps better able to play this new cultural politics, whether from a sort of right-wing nationalist point of view or a hyper-Europeanist point of view. And what about Germany? Because there's an example where we did see a surge, but it was a surge from the non-populist end of the spectrum. It was the Greens who seemed to have caused Angela Merkel's potential successor, Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer, some problems there. That's right. In Germany, in keeping with the European pattern, the Christian and Social Democrats lost ground. And the big winners there, as you say, were the Green Party, which sort of sits on the environmentalist pro-European centre-left, who came second with 21% of votes. And I think most significantly overtook the Social Democrats, which have been the dominant force on Germany's left for, I mean, literally more than a, a century. And I think that speaks to this broader pattern of fragmentation. The Greens didn't just take votes from the Social Democrats. They took votes as well from Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer's Christian Democrats, the party of Angela Merkel. And so you have a lot of mainstream political figures in Berlin this week scratching their heads and asking, what can we do to reconnect, in particular with the young voters who were the backbone of this green surge in Germany? And next door, in European geographical terms, in France, Emmanuel Macron has been spinning his outcome there as pretty much okay, although he comes in behind a populist party there headed by Marine Le Pen. Is this just smoke and mirrors or did he actually do all right? He did actually do all right. His mistake was to, I think, let expectations get too high in advance and unnecessarily to make the European election in France a referendum on his presidency in the wake of the Gilets jaunes or Yellow Vest protests and his progress on on his reform agenda. The European elections are often used by voters as a way to protest against the domestic government. They're a bit of a sort of free kick. And it was, I think, always fairly likely that Marine Le Pen's national rally, this far-right party was going to come first. They did in 2014. And in fact, Emmanuel Macron did better than François Hollande, his predecessor as president, did that time. I think it was just a mistake to make beating Marine Le Pen the measure of whether or not his party was doing all right in those elections. I think, yes, he'll be disappointed that he didn't come first, but there's nothing about this result that doesn't say he can't win the next presidential election in 2022. 
He'll certainly be happy that he did better than the previous incumbent, which seems to matter a lot to French presidents. A low bar, admittedly. Let's look left, if we could now, Jeremy. In Greece, Syriza decimated by the Conservative opposition, so much so that a snap general election has been called, so it would appear that populists of the left have got something of their comeuppance as well. Yes, quite remarkable results from Greece. It doesn't feel like so long ago that Syriza, this far-left anti-establishment party, was storming to victory in early 2015 on an anti-austerity mandate, a mandate to take on the European institutions. Well, as we've seen, Alexis Tsipras's government wasn't really able to achieve that and has actually ended up becoming a bit of a sort of model pupil in following his orders from the EU institutions. But it seems that isn't enough. As you say, Kyriakos Mitsotakis, his rival on the centre-right, led his new democracy to a clear lead over Syriza in the European elections. And Mr Cyprus has responded by calling fresh elections, which I think just suggests that he wants to limit his losses and is perhaps resigned to losing that vote. I guess that's an interesting example of the fragmentation trend that you've been writing about, because it seems to suggest that however you got elected and whatever it was that you were promising that was new and different and populist, you're still vulnerable to the same trend sweeping back towards you. Exactly. And we've seen this as well with some of the anti-establishment right-wing parties. The reality of European politics is not that the old centre-right, centre-left duopoly is either about to be re-established or to be completely replaced by a new duopoly of large big tent parties of a different sort, but that we're just going to have to get used to a landscape with a greater diversity of parties, fewer parties winning big stonking victories, and as a result of that, more compromise and more horse trading needed to marshal the majorities needed to get stuff done, both at a national and a European level. Let's return to the UK, where votes for the pro-Remain parties overall eclipsed votes for pro-Leave ones. Is that why Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the main opposition Labour Party, has finally edged towards backing a second referendum on Brexit? And what would it look like? Well, I think he's been dragged kicking and screaming towards this position by his party's poor result in the European elections. He's been pressured to do that by various figures in his shadow cabinet. But it's really not clear in what circumstances that vote would take place. We don't know when it would take place. Labour also says it wants an early election to resolve the Brexit muddle. We don't know what would be on the ballot paper. Would Labour be offering a no-deal exit or remain or the current deal on offer from the European Union? And we don't know whether or not that would take place towards the end of this year or later. It's the timing and the question are all very much in doubt. Thanks very much for joining us, Jeremy. Thank you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Every year, more and more shopping heads online. In America, even though e-commerce still accounts for less than 10% of retail sales, it's left dead malls, derelict shopping centers, and bereft landlords in its wake. Here in Britain, where e-commerce has a higher penetration than most countries in the world, and it's probably where most countries are headed, you're already seeing what we could call technology roadkill. Henry Trix writes Schumpeter, The Economist's column on global business. 
You're seeing high streets with shops boarded up, you know, shopping centers that are on their last legs, basically because people are not going anymore because they can shop at home. And I mean, it could get quite a lot worse. Landlords who lease property on the high street are struggling as shops close their doors. There are, however, some property firms who have been quietly making a mint out of the tech boom. The tech firms are building things like data centers and vast warehouses in order to distribute the products that go out in in e-commerce. All of this stuff requires property, requires real estate. And into that market has moved uh, sort of somewhat under the radar, I think you would say, a very different crowd, which is the sort of the industrial property sector. These guys are basically one of the very few investors, I guess, who are actually squeezing money out of tech barons. This is called the REIT market. R-E-I-T stands for Real Estate Investment Trust. This is a global asset class. The idea is that a REIT is a pool of property investors that invest in tax-efficient ways in real estate, and they pull the returns from that. This is a huge investment sector in America, for example, but it's it's very bifurcated. And what's interesting is that the industrial REITs, which are the ones that are basically behind this boom in warehousing, for example, these used to be the ugly duckling of the REIT sector. You know, these guys were earning very low returns, they were overbuilding, and it was always retail property that was much more interesting. Now it's completely turned on its head. So the retail, the guys who've invested in retail property have been losing money hand over fist. But the REITs that invest in warehousing and the stuff that's really the backbone of e-commerce, they've been doing incredibly well. They've been making out like bandits. In the last three years, they've had returns increased by about 20% a year. It's quite an interesting turnaround. And what's particularly poignant about it is that in some cases, what you're seeing is those dead malls, those shopping centers that are basically being disrupted by e-commerce have been bought and turned into warehouses themselves. Where are we seeing that kind of changeover? Well, you would think that a lot of these giant warehouses would be in the middle of nowhere. But actually, it's very important. It's increasingly important that they are closer to cities. And the reason for that is that the e-commerce firms, whether it's Amazon or Walmart or whoever, is delivering packages by mail. They're promising shorter and shorter delivery times. So they've got to be nearer to the customer. So the boom markets are, are basically sort of New York and in that area and then along the west coast of the US, the area which is... Which is stunning, <laughs> if you can um, if you can picture it, is what's called the Inland Empire, which is just about sort of sixty miles inland from LA, and it's this sort of really dusty former, you know, semi-desert lot that's been completely transformed by the warehousing for e-commerce. Amazon is just constructing its 13th 1 million square foot warehouse there. It was dirt and now it's just booming there and all the jobs are being provided by the logistics for e-commerce. What about places where land is, isn't quite so plentiful as deep inland around Los Angeles? In America, what you're just beginning to see as 
companies like Amazon start promising next day delivery is that there is no other way but to move actually into the cities. So Prologis, which is one of the industrial REITs, is building a multi-storey warehouse in Seattle. This is a phenomenon that you also see big time in Asia. I mean, especially in Japan, you know, which is an incredibly efficient logistics industry. But, you know, land is in very short supply. So in Tokyo, for example, in Osaka, there are many of these multi-storey warehouses and very, very quick delivery times. We're seeing this this massive boom you describe. What about the potential for a bust? I mean, who's going to want a, a million square foot warehouse fulfillment center kind of thing? If you talk to the industry, they will say that actually they're more insulated from a bust than you would expect. Firstly, because e-commerce is a structural change. This is not just a cyclical problem. I mean, we know that real estate is one of the most cyclical industries. But even in a recession, it's quite likely that the trend towards more e-commerce will continue. So that's there. As they move more into the cities, land is in shorter supply. So there's less danger of overbuilding. This is always what ends up upending this business model is too much competition. There is, to a certain extent, a barrier to entry because of the price of land in big cities. One has to hope that there won't be a hinterland of just abandoned big box warehouses. We are very used to seeing old warehouses everywhere from London to Detroit, lovely red brick buildings that are being turned into trendy lofts, being sold for huge amounts of money. But you can't quite imagine people wanting to actually move in in a, you know, when the cycle turns into one of these <laughs> windowless warehouses. Henry, thanks very much for your time. Jason, it's a pleasure. Thanks. In 2013, the West was hungry for healthy food. Matthew Favas writes about finance and agriculture for The Economist. And the United Nations, amid all that, declared the International Year of Quinoa. So they wanted to give the, the grain some exposure. And it worked very well, because within a matter of months, uh, the price of quinoa tripled, and exports boomed out of Bolivia and Peru, where the, the grain origin is from. It also lured bigger producers, uh, agribusiness in particular, who set up intensive farms in South America's plains, and they were very successful in producing more. And the result of that was a dramatic collapse in price. It's been very difficult for quinoa to recover in terms of, of price, so exports are still pretty high, but sales to America... Uh, which is the largest consumer of quinoa, have uh, pretty much plateaued. Four of the five largest exporters of quinoa out of Peru have gone bust. Quinoa had a very, very fast life cycle, so it, it got very popular very fast. It was too expensive to become mainstream, so it, it basically reached a peak very quick. But a number of companies disagree, and especially agri-businesses and food companies. They think quinoa can be revived or can have a second life, basically, by being used as an ingredient in other food. But if there's been this sort of popping of the quinoa bubble and, you know, prices are flat and margins are low, then why, why try to get in on it? What's the advantage? The advantage is to give a healthy shine to a number of products that uh, perhaps, you know, are, are not often seen as super healthy. So, you, you know, crisps, uh, crackers, cheesy puffs. Add a bit of quinoa to it and you have a bit more flavor and you can probably reach uh, a bigger public, especially a health conscious public. 
So I spoke to a number of uh, exporters and one of them, actually the biggest uh, in the world, Andean Naturals, based in California. It buys most of its quinoa from thousands of Bolivian farmers uh, on the high plateaus. Its boss told me that its truckloads that it uh, ships basically can contain half a dozen sorts of quinoa. So what's the plan to get past that then? How to make it more regular, less volatile, less variable? So agribusinesses, in particular importers, think a good way to homogenize production is actually to grow the seed at home. Home grow it in, in fertile plains in the Midwest, for example, in California. And a number of companies have started to do that. They are working with a number of food companies to develop new products and supply them with the quinoa. One uh, that will resonate, I guess, with uh, a lot of our listeners is Kellogg's, which has used the quinoa, I believe, for cereals, uh, some special cereals, I think, but also for prepared meals and uh, cereal bars. So what does that mean then for all of those Andean farmers who have already lived through this boom and bust? There is some tension. So Sergio Nunez, who is the head of Andean Naturals, told me about the International Congress of Quinoa, which happened in March, uh, which he attended. And he was telling me it's, it was quite striking in the room. Uh, you had on one side uh, all the traditional farmers and archaeologists speaking about the old ancient types of quinoa that they were studying. And on the other side, you had the geneticists who were decoding quinoa's genome and representative from food companies and agribusiness. And you could see that there was a bit of a fork in the road for the future of quinoa, and they did not really agree on what it should be. Now, actually, what um, Mr. Nunez said, and a few people I spoke to said, is that the future can have both. It can have agribusiness on one side, but the small farmers can coexist with that. So the small farmers, they have a competitive advantage in the sense that it's easier to grow organic quinoa in the high plateaus because the uh, lower humidity is a pretty dry climate. And the very fact that there are fewer insects, for example, makes it easier to grow the quinoa without using any pesticides. As a result of which, they probably will keep a share of the market as long as they are able to capture a higher margin. So if they can charge a higher price for organic quinoa. And how do you take your quinoa? I take my quinoa typically as a side dish, boiled, but with uh, a fair amount of butter in it. Being a Frenchman, this is what we tend to do. Mathieu, thank you very much for your time. You're very welcome. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. This is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.